Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with Brian McLaren, and I was absolutely thrilled to get him back onto Face to Face. He was a guest uh, here a couple of years ago, uh, and Brian and I have been having kind of a conversation, I, I think, for uh, a few years on and off about a variety of different things. But today we talk about uh, specifically about his uh, relatively new book called The Great Spiritual Migration. It is well worth the read. So many uh, launching points and questions and things to work through uh, about uh, Christianity about religion, about faith. Uh, the subtitle of the book is How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. And if anyone is is rooted or is willing uh, to be honest uh, about this conversation, rooted in the conversation, I was going to say, they are going to want to uh, crack uh, the cover of this book. We talk about grace and generosity. We talk about uh, how religions have to to get away from being organized to, to become organizing. We have to talk about differences as assets and, and, and not liabilities, says Brian. We, we talk about the way of love and about how people are kind of leaving religion and how religion and how specifically for Brian, Christianity is about a process. It's about relationship. It's, it's, about, um, uh, the, the, it's about the problem of being human. And coming to terms with that and addressing that in a way that um, allows us to let our story individually, but also the greater story of of humanity and of love and so on, uh, serving us well. So make sure you 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 dial in. This is a great interview. Uh, I had a blast, and once again, it's it's one of those uh, conversations where you uh, just you kind of wish they, they 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 wouldn't end. And I think that's the, the the beautiful thing about this and about what Brian is doing with his work. And, and, and shining a light on humanity and hope and humility and, 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 and in, a, in 
a way that helps to frame a new story for all of us, I think is really quite remarkable. There's something here for everybody. This isn't a book just for Christians. This is a book for people who are interested in where we're heading. I think people who are interested in meaning and 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 so many other things. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, Brian McLaren coming right up. Don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my writing and speaking and uh, so on. And also face-to-facelive.ca for a whole host of other interviews uh, about uh, writers and filmmakers and uh, having conversations about uh, things that matter. Coming right up, The Great Spiritual Migration with Brian McLaren. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a, a very special guest uh, here with us today, a returning guest, I believe, from several years ago. Brian McLaren is here with us today to talk about his, I guess, relatively new book, The Great Spiritual Migration, subtitled How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Uh, great to be with you again. So I, I guess it is a couple of years, isn't it? Um, Great Spiritual Migration uh, came out in uh, 2016 in hardcover and then 2017 in softcover. So, um, yeah, but I haven't written anything since. I feel like uh, there's still plenty to talk about with that book. So uh, that's my current book. So... I've done the book, and and th- thank you for the book, and congratulations on the book, and 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 I and I think I've said to you before, it's a it's a it's a remarkable read. Um, uh, it's one of my it's one of my more underlined books of of late, and 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 yet, and and as I was flipping through it, as I as I was prepping for for the interview, I kind of I kind of didn't I kind of didn't know where to start almost with, with some of my questions, but, uh, you know, the title, the great spiritual migration, I mean, aren't just, you know, aren't people just leaving period? Yeah. I mean, religion period. I mean, maybe we don't even need to talk about being a better way to be Christian at this point, but aren't, aren't people leaving in droves? Like didn't Lenny Bruce years ago say, uh, uh, everyday people are leaving religion and going back to God, I think was the quote, uh, from (laughs) back in the sixties. Yeah, well, it's complicated, as you know. Yeah. It, it used to be that Christianity was the world's largest religion, with about 33% of the world's population. Islam was second largest, with 21 to 24%, and uh, Hinduism was next to 17%. But um, non-religious, uh, you know, un- unreligiously affiliated people now have uh, surpassed Hindus. So they're somewhere in the 17-plus uh, percent range. And um, so this is a global phenomenon. People are leaving active practice of Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam. But uh, here in North America, uh, we're seeing patterns that are remarkably similar to European patterns, maybe 50 to 100 years later. But, uh, yes, yeah, similar patterns of being religiously unaffiliated. And... And is that, I don't, I don't get the sense that that's a huge problem for you. Well, um, David, as you know, uh, I've, I've gone through a very, very deep and, and ongoing um, mm. rethinking process. Right, which is what I so and love it, about this book, by the way, that, that sense of, I don't know, like you say, ongoing, but it's a, it's a process, it's a relationship, yeah. it's, it's kind of happening as we speak. And, and, you know, as a guy living south of the border, um, watching what's happened to both conservative Protestantism and conservative mm, Catholicism mm, in this country, where white uh, Christians of all persuasions have been happy to sign up uh, 
in, you know, to line up behind uh, an obvious authoritarian demagogue who courts white supremacists, neo-Nazis, anti-Semites, Islamophobes, homophobes, and all the rest, and watching white Christianity in many ways sell its soul in this way, sometimes I think that, um, you know, people worry about Christianity dying. As I say in the book, I'm much more worried about Christianity killing Mm. And uh, I, I would be much more concerned about large numbers of people affiliating with the forms of the Christian religion that I think, to, to, if you don't mind me being a little dramatic and no. borrowing a phrase from Jesus, that turn people into twice the sons of hell they were before. So um, uh, I am a deep believer in Jesus and the way of Christ. And in the long run, I'm a deep believer in organized religion and in the Christian faith. But we're in a rough patch right now, and people have a good reason to leave. Um, But that is also why there are other people who are saying the status quo is increasingly untenable. And so new ways of being Christian are becoming more and more possible, and uh, I think I don't think anything's guaranteed, mm. but I, I think, uh, depending on how people like us and everyone listening, depending on how we live, uh, the future could be much better than the past and the present. There's a sense in which you, do, you just kind of go, I, I, just, I just need to wash my hands, I think, or at least there, yeah. there is for me. I mean, it just, it just, wow, you know, you look at the stats, you look at the history, you look at what's going on and what, like, as you say, what people are aligning themselves with and uh, around the world, frankly, we can we can have some fun, you know, uh, blaming the U.S. for everything. You don't mind that, do you, Brian? Um, well, if the shoe fits, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. But but it, there's a sense where you just go, why bother? Like we're done. Yeah. I'm done. I'm I'm moving on. Yeah, here's where I yeah, I, and that is totally understandable. And when I have many of my friends say that that's kind of the path they're taking. I just tell them, I'm your friend, uh, we can talk about anything, and let's, uh, you know, don't, don't worry about being rejected by me. But here's the interesting thing. Let's say that you decide to disaffiliate with the Christian faith. Um, you know, it's not like there's another great religious option that doesn't have its own skeletons in the closet, right? right. And, and any religion with any history... Uh, Here's two ways to say it, David. David, uh, any religion with any history has, you know, skeletons in its closet, and any new religion, its worst days are still ahead of. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 then you realize this it, this isn't just a problem of Christianity or right. of religion. It's a problem of human beings. Right. Right. Um, you know, whether it's a, we could talk about political ideology, econ, economic ideologies, nationalism, any way that, you know, corporation, uh, Facebook, you know, in the news these days, any organization that people affiliate with, we human beings have ways to, you know, make it ugly. And there, these are flaws and immaturities and uh, blindnesses that, are still baked into us. And and so ironically, if we want to talk about fixing those things in any part of human life, then we're talking about the development of character and the de- development mm-hmm. of values and the development of a narrative and the development of habits and practices and communities of practice. 
and suddenly it sounds like we're talking about religion again, you know, in, in, in some way. Do you think, you know, is it, is this about, um, uh, uh, is this about oppression? Is this about, is this about power? I mean, you talked about being, you know, immature, I think, as a human and, you know, and then for me, that sort of raises the question, well, you know, how, how, did, A, how did we become so immature, I suppose, or maybe we always were, you know, fascinated by all the wrong things, yeah. hypnotized by, by power and, 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 and prestige, I suppose. Is, is there, for you, is there, um, I, the problem being human, is there a root to that? Is there well, a... Well, you know, I mean, if, in the, in, if you want to take, take the, the big evolutionary time frame, and you think, you know, our species scientists just say, really, us as a gene pool, we've only been around for 200,000 years. And, and uh, how much of that we've had, anything like a sophisticated language, uh, I couldn't guess. We've only had agriculture for 12,000 years. You know, you realize we're, we're still very, very new. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're not that far climbing down from the trees, you know. So, so we're very new. And and we've evolved so quickly, and our capacity to build weapons always seems to outstrip our character and wisdom in knowing how to use them. And and so I think, in part, this is an, an evolutionary problem. Uh, one particular dimension of it, though, is our uh, our capacity for aggression and violence. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really interesting is, as a species, I think, we evolved a phenomenally effective method of dealing with, uh, with chaotic violence tens of thousands of years ago. Um, but over time, we started to see that that method of solving one set of problems created a new set of problems. And what I'm referring to is patriarchy. Mm. And, um, and I really think part of the moment that we're in now as a species is... is we're nudging up against the ability to outgrow patriarchy and move to a better way of being human individually and as societies. And this is one of the reasons both religion and government are having such a struggle right now. You know, we're in a sense, we're having a reversion to patriarchy in government Mm. Um, around the world. There's this return to strongman leaders, whether it's uh, Trump in the U S or, you know, um, in Philippines or Italy or several Eastern European countries, you know, this appeal of the strongman Putin in Russia. Um, uh, and so I, I think this this was is our opportunity to mature into a new level of, of, uh, of interaction. But we're struggling with it. And, uh, and our religious communities are really the communities that in the past have helped people uh, develop the habits of the heart and the mm. habits of society to keep moving forward. But right now, they're like blind. You know, it's so funny that the the very thing that 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 brings us together seems, you know, being human is is huh. yeah. Can can you find more common ground than that? So being human, <laughs> and yet that's the very thing that seems to be driving us apart and creating that division. This. This, this, this. Uh, you know, you talk a great deal about, I think, different uh, difference as being an asset, yeah, and and not a liability, right? Similar yeah. similarity through difference, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and yet, 
boy, does that seem like a, a pretty difficult thing for us to land on. Do you know, do you know the novel, the Canadian novelist, um, uh, Richard Rogamies? He, no, I don't. So, so he, he, uh, he passed away uh, about a year ago and, um, he, he's written many, uh, first, you know, from a first, uh, first nations perspective, uh, obviously many, many different novels, but, um, uh, he talks about, about, uh, stories, uh, you know, having uh, the capacity, uh, to heal. Mm. And, and yeah. you also get into that a little bit. And I'd love, I mean, maybe, maybe you can sort of connect that back to the whole differences, assets and not liabilities, but this idea you, you bring up in, in, in the book, Brian, that na- narrative precedes system. And yeah. I'd, I'd love, I mean, you don't have to connect those two, but I, I sort of sense that they're connected, yeah. but not necessarily. Anyway, Richard's work is, is uh, well worth uh, 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 looking into. That is for sure. Um, if, if you get a chance, his film, his new film's being released in Canada, uh, very soon, uh, 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 Stephen Campanelli's turned it into a film, Indian Horse. Anyway, look for it if you get a chance. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, you've, you've got me intrigued because I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think we frame our individual lives by certain stories. Um, you know, growing up, I was the quiet, smart kid. Um, I like to just sort of. You know, I had a story about myself that, that I told. Um, uh, my, my family had a story. My denomination had a story. The Christian religion had a story. My nation ha- had a story mm. that it told itself. And sometimes our stories serve us really well. They're more or less accurate. Sometimes they're full of delusion and deceit, and they serve us very, very badly. So, um, uh, and they hurt other people. So. Right. This issue of how narratives frame us is extremely interesting to me. It became really interesting to me some years ago when I, I'd been a pastor for enough years that I really, you know, was deeply familiar with the Bible. And I started to realize that in many ways, Jesus was showed up on the scene trying to tell a different story. He, he was trying to mm-hmm. give people an alternative story to live by. And he had the, the Pharisees and telling one story, and the Zealots telling another story, and the Herodians and Sadducees telling another story, and the Essenes telling another. There are all these conflicting stories about what life is about, what's going on here, how we should live, what we're hoping for. You know, they give us a vision of the past, the present, and the future. And um, Jesus came along with this different story. And, and that, uh, that's very much where I think we are, uh, where we're stuck right now. I just use Trump, uh, as an example, even though in one sense all of us are sick of hearing his name, in another sense, you know, he, he, he's uh, uh, an intrusion into almost every dimension of life right now. Um, but, you know, when he told, had this America First story, it's the story of nationalism mm-hmm. and, uh, and the idea that um, our future comes from putting our nation first, and in a sense, uh, being happy uh, to, for us to win and others to lose. Um, that's, a, that, that's an old, old story, you know. Uh, and many of us, I think actually, it's one of the stories that the Bible critiques quite strongly, but it's got its appeal. And he told that story and people bought it. Do you think that the, I mean, the story of, I guess we could talk about the, the story of religion, but you know, you're, you're more specifically talking about the story of, of Christianity or a new story of Christianity. Do you think folks today, 
that that are having problems with that narrative, the current narrative, or the, uh, what we hear most about, I suppose, is actually, um, you know, going to disallow them from 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 seeing things in a new way. And you know that you know you talk a lot about paradigms in in the book, and yes. I would say throughout your writing. For, you know, over the years, yeah. you've spoken a great deal about paradigmatic shifts in in, in variety of ways. So, yeah. I mean, and 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 I'm not really concerned about about convincing people to come over to this side in any way, shape, or form in, yeah. our, in our conversation. But the story is going to get in the way. The current story is going to get in the way of a new story. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you, you might say when a current story or paradigm or you know system of thought or my my favorite term for it is a framing story. It's mm-hmm. a story that we frame everything in. When a framing story is working really well, it's almost impossible. In fact, psychologists call it confirmation bias. Anything that doesn't fit in with that story just bounces off. Right. Um, it can't even get through. So yeah, stories have a certain uh, stories that are working have a certain filtering capacity and. Uh, I, I think it's why Jesus had to constantly speak of blindness. Hmm. You just can't see things when, when you're deep in a story that seems to be working for you. But sometimes the story stops working for you. Um, and, and, and other times you realize that the story that's working for you is hurting other people. And one way or another, when it starts to crumble, um, that's when you you start looking for a better story. And, and a whole lot of the people who are leaving religion have just realized there's no story there for me that makes any sense. Nobody, now, there, there might be you know, some theologian in some you know, mountaintop uh, monastery somewhere might have a story that could help people within their religion, but they've never heard it. And the popular versions that they've heard make no sense to them. But what's happening in the Christian faith, and I'm privileged to have Muslim and Jewish and Hindu and other friends who tell me they have similar things going on in their tradition, but what's happening in the Christian faith is there is a radical re-examination and and reconstruction of of a kind of Christian story, and that's what I'm talking about in the Great Spiritual Memory. You talk, you talk about Christians, I think, uh, uh, and maybe, you know what, maybe we should, you know, we're, we're, we're like, you know, almost 20 minutes in and we haven't really defined what a Christian is, or you haven't defined what a Christian is for yeah. us. That might not be a bad place place to sort of uh, go now. But you talk about, I think, in, in the book, Christians as being, uh, and maybe all of us, frankly, as people in motion. Or, we, or, or, or maybe you speak about it sort of prescriptively in the sense that we should be, you know, people of motion. Yeah. Yeah. So he, here's... Um, you know, for, for, I, I think there are two ways I would define Christian. One is a Christian is an adherent to, a Christ, to the Christian religion. So if you call yourself a Christian, in one sense I'll say, okay, you're a Christian, right? Um, if I were looking for a deeper sense, I would probably talk about people who are actually dedicated to following Christ. Like, I, I don't care that much about what they say they believe or what what organization or institution they're affiliated with. I, I know other people care about that a great deal. I just don't care about it that much. Um, in fact, the first third of the Great Spiritual Migration, I make a proposal that for some people is so obvious and so easy to accept, and other people 
is appalling and mm. incomprehensible. And the proposal is this, that we stop defining Christianity as a system of beliefs, and rather we define it as a way of life. Mm. Now, mm. part of that way of life is thinking about our beliefs. So I'm not against beliefs. I think beliefs are great. They're just not the point. And, and, um, and this is happening in many, many sectors of the Christian faith, this, in a sense, this unbolting of the system of beliefs, this endless argumentation about who has the perfect set of beliefs. And instead, people are saying, you know, that doesn't seem to be getting us where we need to go. What is the way of life that Jesus embodied and taught? If I want to be a Christian, I probably ought to take that seriously. So that, for me, is a starting point. So, so it's more, it's more about, I, I guess another word, and again, I'm, I'm pretty sure you speak about it a great deal in the book is, is movement or a movement well, or a movement. Exactly right. Because if you're uh, about a system of beliefs, then once you have it right, your job is to stay put, don't right. change, hold the line. But if you say, you know, that's not really the point. We're here to, to, if, if this way of life is a way of love and if love directs us outward, we, we have to love ourselves, but we get the same love that we have for ourselves, we learn to extend to our neighbor. Oh, and not just to our neighbor, but also to the stranger and the alien. Oh, and not just to the stranger and the alien, but also the outcast and the outsider. And not just the outcast and outsider, but even to the enemy, right? So now we have this radical expansion of the circle of love. And then that circle of love, if we love human beings, we have to love the earth because there are no human beings without the earth. And so, you know, this old idea that you could love souls and care about souls but not care about bodies, and bodies need to breathe, so there has to be an atmosphere and a climate, and bodies need to drink, so there has to be clean water, and bodies need to eat, so there has to be soil and all the rest. Suddenly now, we're loving all of creation, Mm -hmm. right? And my personal belief is that part of Jesus' message, and really part of the message that begins in the prophets and extends all the way through the New Testament, is that there is no way to meaningfully speak of loving God without also speaking of loving, without also loving your, your, your fellow creatures. So, right. uh, so that, that becomes a movement, because love gets you moving, and it's this constant movement out of ourselves to the other. Mm. Uh, and this is one of the other big challenges of not just the Christian religion, but all of our major world religions, that they, they do become institutionalized, and there's nothing wrong with that. Institutions are important, but institutions rely on vital movement, and movements are always interacting with institutions. And, and part of what's happened in the Christian faith is we have really become, uh, dip, we, we've become complacent in our institutions, and we need to become reactivated in our movement. Is is this a little bit what you mean about from organized to organizing? Exactly. So the way I, I like to say it is that organized religion is religion organized for self-preservation. And and it that's that's what ends up happening with our institutions. They exist to preserve uh, uh and and sadly because we're the inheritors of patriarchy what that ends up meaning is that and it, this doesn't have to be this way. I'm just saying I think it is. Right. That institutions exist 
to protect the powerful men, primarily men who run them. And, and frankly, it, in, in Western context, it's the powerful, privileged white men who run them mm. and uh, keep them happy to fulfill their taste, to, uh, uh, you know, conform to their preferences. Um, uh, but if, if part of what happens now is we say, well, hold it, we're not just an institution, we're a movement, and we have to challenge institutions with a call to keep moving forward in the areas of justice and in the areas of peace and in the areas of caring for the planet and, 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 and working for the poor. Well, now organized religion has to stop being organized for its own self-preservation and the protection of its elites, and it has to become, it has to organize for the common good. And this is why we need organizations, we need institutions, but we need them to be leveraged to help us be engaged working for the common good. It's, you know, it reminds me a little bit, the analog, I think, or at least partial, partial analog, I suppose, is, is you know, not large nonprofit organizations who, who want to talk about, you know, authenticity and, and, and being, you know, uh, nimble. <laughs> yes. And, and they're, they're these massive organizations, and they, they become... Well, they're they're principalities in a sense, but they 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 exist sort of for others, and they're here to solve the problems of the world. And it's about social justice, and 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 for faith-based organizations, it's about loving their neighbors. But how much of that is really become about serving, you know, the institution itself? And 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 it's it's heartbreaking when, when yes. you know when you see that. And where when people are more interested in protecting their own pensions over protecting the poor, you know. Yeah. So, two quick thoughts on that, David. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, uh, I, a friend of mine says the first thing to go in an institution is the mission. <laughs> wow. Uh, and uh, I, I experienced that. I, I'm sure you have big box uh, hardware stores and lumber stores. And that's oh yeah. And so I had to go to one of these, this is several years ago now, but I needed this special kind of light bulb, and I knew I had seen it at this store before, um, but uh, I went and I couldn't find it anywhere. And there's like nine employees in a little circle in a in, in the aisleways, and they're talking about some office gossip or company gossip. Yeah, 20 years ago, they would have all been smoking cigarettes, right? You know that, right? Right. And I'm literally circling around them trying to break in. And I sort of want to jump up and down and say, hey, you guys, the reason you're here is for me, you know. Um, if I can't find my light bulb, you know. Um, but but uh, obviously it, that little ingrown circle happens. And so a hospital can exist to make doctors rich. And, mm. and a, uh, a school can exist to uh, protect teachers from having to work too hard. And, you know, it, it just goes on and on. But how important are schools to actually keep their mission going? And how important mm. are hospitals to keep their mission going? So when people see malfunctioning institutions, they, they get angry and they want to get rid of the institutions. No, we need them desperately. Um, if you lose your institutions, you're Libya. You know, if you lose your right. institutions, Syria, um, we need institutions. We have no idea how chaotic and how far we've come. I mean, we depend on hundreds and hundreds of institutions to be doing their work in an interlocking kind of way. But 
this is where faith communities come in, I think, because right. if faith is about imagining what's possible, what's not actual, what's not easy, but what is possible, then in a sense, it's faith that makes us challenge our institutions to keep growing and improving and doing better. Um, can we, it, it does make sense. Yeah. I love, I love the notion about uh, faith being about asking about, you know, what's, what's possible reaching out sort of beyond our grasp in a sense. And, and isn't that what, you know, I don't know, uh, love and taking risks and, and, and being authentic is, is kind of really all about, do you mind if we change gears a little bit? And, and I'm, and and this is partially because I, 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 um, I've, I've just finished reading Indian Horse and actually watching the film as well, and I'm going to be interviewing. I'm kind of kind of um, uh, thrilled about it. Stephen Campanelli. He's the uh, uh, camera. He's been the camera operator, the steady cam operator for Clint Eastwood for over 25 years. And wow. so, um, anyway, his is I think his second or third film now, Indian Horse, this Richard Wagamese piece uh, um, about First Nations communities here and, and resident the residential school system. And you say you, you you have a whole chapter, the genocide card card in your back yeah. pocket. And there's a quote here. Uh, I'm just going to get a little, little bit of uh, uh, off uh, page 75 from the Great Spiritual Mi- Migration. Uh, quote: The only way Christianity can become salvageable is by admitting that it is unsalvage- unsalvageable in its present form. The only way it can be saved is to admit that it is lost. The only way it can be healed is to admit that it is blind, deaf, lame, and sick. Close quote. Pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty strong words for a strongly titled chapter the genocide card in your back pocket can you i mean i mean i think this is one of those issues after watching indian horse after reading the book i kind of go we have no idea we have no idea what happened yeah and in fact that chapter was uh was inspired in many ways by uh, a canadian first nations uh, scholar named mazia talon and um and I was actually drawing from a quote from her mm. uh, in, uh, about Christianity being unsalvageable. And she, she says, from the perspective of a First Nations person who was on the receiving end of the worst of Christianity, right. um, uh, and, and, and then adding to that the damage that a kind of plundering, triumphalistic, uh, industrial strength Christianity has done to the earth. You know, she says, the earth cannot sustain another 500 years of Christian domination. Mm. And uh, I I think she's right. And it's one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate for change in the Christian faith. Um, Obviously, I I think the way that we have behaved has been grossly unfaithful to Christ, to our Founder. Um, who I, I love and follow, but uh, I also just think, out of love for our neighbors, we better make sure that the Christian faith, uh, you know, gets turned around. How did Brian? How did anybody ever think that that the doctrine of discovery w- was a good idea? Yeah, you know, I, I'll or, or any or any of that, you know, uh, the, the the residential school system. I mean, you, yeah, you almost. You, you, you watch it represented in film, you read about it, you, you start to unpack it in conversation with somebody, and you just go, this, this didn't really happen, did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's just it's the stunning. inhumanity of it, the, the cruelty. It is stunning. And it's one of the things, as we said earlier, if you are living in a story, mm. um, you, you know, all of these psychological yep. 
factors like confirmation bias. Um, Another another one, I call it competency bias in education. It's called the Dunning-Kruger hypothesis, and it basically says that incompetent people are incompetent of knowing how incompetent they are. <laughs> right. You know, they don't know enough to know yeah. how little they know. You put all that together, and people can do horrible, horrible things. And uh, so, you know, I, I, this is in no way making an excuse, but... For us trying to understand, I, I can imagine, you know, uh, our great-great-great-grandchildren a couple centuries from now, if they could come back in a time machine and they see the devastation that fossil fuels have done right. to, to the Earth, I can imagine them putting you and me on trial and saying, mm-hmm. you, you guys owned cars, you guys heated your home with electricity that came from oil or coal, you guys flew on airplanes. You're monsters. You know what I mean? I yeah. can easily see them saying that. And, and our only defense would be, that's how everybody traveled. That's how everybody thought. Uh, it doesn't excuse us at all. But, uh, but, but then you look back at what was done by people who were as oblivious to their damage as many of us have been about fossil fuels. And you just think, oh, God, help us. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's. It's horrible. And, um, and you know, I think I, I was in my 50s before I ever even heard of the doctrine of discovery. And that's another part of this problem yeah. in, in, in the Christian community, as in many communities. We keep secrets, and the story we tell ourselves is a sanitized story. And, um, and, and that's very, very dangerous. It's it's and I think you're right. I mean, it's uh, I've been doing for the last couple of years, and I've I've mentioned it in in, in uh, a few interviews, probably in the last couple of years, with the uh, the one class I teach still at, at Humber College in international development. I've been bringing in uh, um, uh, a First Nations leader uh, who lives in Toronto doing a blanket ceremony. I don't know if you've ever been through one of those, but it's quite a quite, no. quite a remarkable uh, way of of telling the story and and all of that. Uh, that 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 horrible part of our history kind of comes out in a, in about a sixty to ninety minute exercise. There's about sixty students. Thir- you know, blankets are put down to represent the provinces of Canada. Students stand on them, and then one by one, the doctrines are read and the proclamations are made. And 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 people walk around and touch you, and they say, "Hey, you just died of scurvy, and you just got moved into a residential school." And it's really this talk about being immersed in this narrative kind of. Um, you know, yeah. uh, uh, a class, I guess you could say, or experience. And yeah. then at the end of it, it's, I mean, I've seen, st- I mean, I've been in tears over it. I've watched uh, students uh, just c- kind of coming to terms with it because it just roots you in a way. Wow, I've never even, you know, I've, I like it when you said I haven't heard of the Doctrine of Discovery until you were in your 50s. Say, I mean, I've just, just, I guess, in the last eight, eight to 10 years sort of started getting a better understanding of just how deep, <laughs> how deep all of this, the darkness goes. Yes, and it's yeah. it's it's just. Do you think? I mean, I mean, do you think? I'm pretty sure I know what you you think on this, but I'd love to hear more about it. The, this, do, do we kind of need to repent? I guess in a sense, <laughs> and and say, I mean, it, it kind of because on one hand that sort of is a contradiction probably of the Christian message, but at the same time, um, um, yeah, like uh, guys, boy, 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 did we blow it? That's not even scratching the surface. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think it, it, this is very, very humbling. It's very, very humbling. 
you know, years ago, I can't remember the psychologist, but uh, the, the, uh, some psychologist wrote something like this. Happy are those who have ruined their lives. Mm. And I, I think what he meant was when you know you've ruined your life, you, you lose a certain naivete and you become humble in a certain way. And you, for the rest of your life, you are you live better because you know that you've ruined your life at least once, you know? And, uh, and I think there is something like this for nations and for religions. Uh, I think, and, and civilization, uh, for the rest of human history, Western civilization with its Christian roots and its roots in colonialism is going to have to acknowledge uh, the horrors that it did through uh, colonialism and uh, the doctrine of discovery and so on. It will be part of the story we tell about ourselves forever. Hopefully the way we do about the Holocaust. We, in Western civilization, have to look back in the 20th century and say, do you understand what advanced scientific people use their scientific knowledge and organizational bureaucratic knowledge to do to uh, exterminate six million people, it, it becomes a humbling part of our history. And frankly, all of human civilization um, for the future, if we get through this next rough patch, we'll have to tell the story of our destruction of the planet. Uh, you know, I, I was just watching a, um, a video the other night about a section of China where that's a wasteland, mm. and um, mm. they, they just discovered that it used to be a verdant uh, uh, countryside, mm -hmm. but hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people started grazing animals on it. And so what, you know, for 500 years, people have thought of it as a wasteland. It was a wasteland because of overgrazing right. so 800 years ago. And, and uh, you just realize this isn't, uh, we, we've been making these ecological mistakes for a long, long time. And this if we can own this and be humbled by it, uh, it becomes part of the story we tell ourselves about our past. I think it will help us be wiser as we move into the future. That's good. Um, yeah, sad, sadly, we're going to have to wrap this up in a few minutes, Brian. I, 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 clearly, we're going to we're going to have to do a part two. We barely scratched the surface. Um, what do you, what do you say? What do you say to the the critics, the hypercritics, uh, who say now? Okay, love it. Love what you're saying. Sounds great, but let's let's you know the next step in evolution should be that we're just going to eradicate religion altogether. And yeah. is that a is that a better world? I mean, I don't. Yeah. Anyway, I think you've kind of, in a sense, implicitly already answered the question. But I'd love to hear because uh, you 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 do wind up very hopeful at the end of the great spiritual migration. I mean, the, clearly the thread runs throughout. But but you come to. You know, so you know the the chapter about so 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 much being right with the world. Yes, yeah. Well, well, the the thing I would say to a person who who says that is, at first, I'd ask them what they mean by religion, because maybe when they're defining religion, I, I would agree with them. What they're defining, <laughs> right, right? You know, maybe needs to go. But um, I would say to them, listen, the world that we desire and dream of is based on a set of values. Who is going to teach those values? Um, and it's not just values that you hold in theory. It's also 
capacities, or you might call them moral skills or character qualities. And who's going to teach those character qualities and that kind of moral know-how to future generations? And who's going to stand for it in the public square? And who's going to, in a sense, justify that set of values when it is attacked or when they're eroded or when corruption is overcoming them? You know, suddenly you realize if we're talking about moral values, we're talking about a vision of the future, we're talking about uh, 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 quality of character and so on, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it Fred. You can call it, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. But that's religion. (laughs) You know, that's that's the quest for meaning. That's the question. That's the quest for a story to live by. That's a quest for... uh, what what the great Catholic philosopher and writer John Hott calls, it's the quest for rightness. Mm. What's the right way to live? People are always going to be asking that question. Um, let's let's end on uh, let's end on love. Um, near, near near the end of the book, you say you say it's difficult to make love for neighbor, self, the earth, and God, your life's highest ambition. It's difficult to cancel your nostalgic vacation into the past or awaken from your fanciful speculations about the future so you can engage passionately with the fierce urgency of now. You then go on to talk about this way of love, this sort of global, I guess, spiritual movement of love. Um, But you also talk about it being, you know, annoying and frustrating and disappointing (laughs) and, and, and all those things. So you're sort of like, wow, this is wonderful and isn't this uplifting and, and, and hopeful. And yet, it's this is this is not going to be easy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I I, I uh, I'm sitting in my house right now, and uh, if I look out my back window, I see the lights of my neighbor, who is a Trump supporting, Islamophobic, white supremacist, angry man. You know, and. Uh, I have to learn how to love him, mm. and uh, I I have to accept him, try to understand him, appreciate him as my neighbor, and at the same time hope that I might be able to nudge him just mm. a, a little bit more toward uh, toward the way of love himself, you know. And and even if he doesn't, I might have to get in the way and try to protect some people who he might hurt, you know. Right. But but that's reality and. Uh, and so it's not easy. Um, uh, and of course, all of us who've been parents, we know our kids go through some rough patches. Uh, I, I just heard a song by a great uh, song, a songwriter named Andy Gullihorn called Teenagers. <laughs> he basically says, you know, if we're ever having trouble beating ourselves up enough, we've got teenagers to help us. And, uh, and, and then he says, uh, sometimes the only thing that brings us through is the realization that someday our teenagers will grow up. Right. And have you know, that's love. We, we, we're all difficult sometimes. But, uh, but that's, that's where, you know, the high lofty theory um, uh, has to be worked out with your neighbor. I, I so love that you've got this, um, you know, this global spiritual sort of movement has to begin here and now and in the yeah. present and with me and with my family and with my neighbors, not only those people who I live, uh, you know, across from and beside, but, but those I interact with every single day, the people I'm shaking hands with. I love this, that it's, that, that they're both connected, you know, the micro yeah, and the macro. 
That's right. And I believe that with all of my being. And, and, and that outward, the macro, the micro, is also connected with the internal of mm. even learning how to know and understand and rightly love myself. And in some way, this to me is kind of the doorway. Uh, you know, I'm 62 years old in a couple of days. And, and I, what I would say at this point in my life, I, I would say those experiences of love on all of those levels, that is the doorway to whatever we mean when we say the word God. Hmm. That's the doorway into it. Nice. Brian, thanks a lot for your time. I, I, I mean, yeah, wow. Thank you for the, the, the great spiritual migration, for what you're doing. Um, been talking to Brian McLaren today about his newish book, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to be Christian. Yeah, thank, thanks for your time. I mean, you know, erring uh, erring on the side of grace, generosity, and, and gratitude. And that's uh, that's kind of that's kind of how I feel when when I read your work, by the way. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.